The opinions expressed in the Palace of Glittering Delights are mine and mine alone. No one would be stupid enough to hold them. The things discussed in the Palace of Glittering Delights may lead to spoilers if you have not seen the topic of today's episode. There may also be occasional ranting and swearing. Don't say I didn't warn you. It's a new era. So let's revisit an old classic. 1978's Battlestar Galactica. There are those who believe that life here began out there, far across the universe, with tribes of humans who may have been the forefathers of the Egyptians, or the Toltecs, or the Mayans. Some believe that there may yet be brothers of man who even now fight to survive somewhere beyond the heavens. When Battlestar Galactica was launched in the September of 1978, it was too much fanfare and publicity. But the weekly series that followed the expensive three-hour pilot presentation was not without its problems. For one, Galactica was not planned to be a weekly show, rather a series of two-hour telefilms. This is why, of the 23 hours of television Universal made for Galactica in 1978-1979, a whopping 13 of them were two-part stories. For two, this put the producers on the back foot with regards to production. As such, many of the early single-hour episodes of Galactica, such as The Lost Warrior, The Long Patrol and The Magnificent Warriors, are takeoffs of popular films, heavily utilising the back lot and existing costumes and props. This was tried and true, with both The Incredible Hulk and Quantum Leap doing the same thing in their early truncated seasons. These Galactica episodes also trade on the Western archetypes of the show, all borrowing liberally from the cowboy motif, be it the small town in need of help, the magnificent warriors, the lone gunman defending an oppressed people outside a saloon in The Lost Warrior, or roguish criminals in cells in The Long Patrol. Battlestar Galactica was foremost a tale of genocide, 
Humanity was wiped out by a race of machines known as the Cylons, and the series that followed would follow the Galactica and its crew as they tried to find a new home, those having been completely destroyed in the pilot movie. The new home was a legendary shining planet called Earth. The two-part episodes all have a scope and an ambition to them that the aforementioned single-episode stories do not. The first episode to break out of the It's a Western, but in space archetype was The Young Lords, an episode generally regarded as one of the worst, but one I think is to a reappraisal. Originally entitled The Young Warriors, but presumably changed so as not to be the third episode in nearly a row to have Warrior in the title, The Young Lords was directed by Donald P. Belisario and written by Belisario, Frank Lupo and Paul Playden. Belisario was one of the most prolific producers to come out of the Glenn Larson, Stephen J. Cannell stable. The co-creator of Magnum P.I. and the creator of Erwolf, Tales of the Gold Monkey, Quantum Leap, Jag and NCIS, Belisario was a reliable and competent creative whose work was always top-notch and creator-driven. He learned well from his mentors on other levels as well, completely repurposing the Lost Warrior episode of Galactica as The Lady and the Tiger, an episode of Tales of the Gold Monkey. Frank Lupo also came from the Cannell stable, and along with Cannell, created 80 Smash the A-Team, along with The Greatest American Hero, Hunter and, alone, Werewolf. He was also the showrunner and executive producer of Wise Guy, a groundbreaking television show and one of the first US network shows to embrace serialisation. Paul Playden wrote for Kolchak the Night Stalker, Mission Impossible and developed Chips. So with so many reliable hands in the mix, how can this even be the worst episode? Answer... It can't. Not by a long shot. Let's get into why. Firstly, the teaser. Starbuck had to crash land. They planted on the far edge of Omega Sector. At least we don't rust. Kyle. My brother. He's our leader. He's only a boy and the others were just children. We trade Starbuck to the tin cans for father. And I just wanted to thank you. We don't have your father yet, but... Uh, you're welcome. This teaser is one of the most useless in the series, pretty much giving away everything that happens in the show, especially if you're paying attention. When these were shown on ITV when I first watched them, back in 83, 84, they always cut the teasers off. The theme, however, is still one of the finest in TV history. The Young Lords is a very Starbuck-centric show, giving Dirk Benedict a lot to do, often at the expense of the other characters who barely feature. This was the second such episode after The Long Patrol, and this didn't go unnoticed by series star Richard Hatch, who played Captain Apollo, who promptly asked the producers to give him the same kinds of juicy parts Benedict was getting. 
This resulted in the producers taking a much later episode, Experiment in Terror, and simply swapping Apollo and Starbuck's name in the script. Hatch was not best pleased by this and went to Benedict to apologise, explaining that that wasn't what he'd asked for. This episode, The Young Lords, was novelised by Robert Thurston as number four in the Galactica novels range. Oddly, it isn't two episodes sandwiched together to make it novel length. Rather, only this one episode forms the narrative, making for a short but snappy read. Normally, I mention any such novels after looking at the show, but this novel is noteworthy for beginning substantially before the televised episode and adding some much-needed backstory to Starbuck. The episode starts with Starbuck being a little under the weather and perhaps contemplating where his life is and how he's got there, but the reasons for that melancholy are left to the audience's imagination. In the book, Starbuck is having some mental health issues. The war with the Cylons, the destruction of the colonies, his inability to settle with one girl, his bad habits of drinking and gambling are all getting to him, and he consults with the onboard therapist. Starbuck having a crisis of conscience is well ahead of its time, and that the Galactica had a therapist for the soldiers to speak to was highly advanced. I have no idea if this was in the script or an addition by Thurston, but Belisario was a marine veteran, and it's possible he was channeling his own ideas into the script. We also learn more about Starbuck's parentage and how he came to be aboard the Galactica. All of this juicy stuff is only hinted at in the episodes, specifically the man with nine lives, where Fred Astaire shows up on board the Galactica as possibly Starbuck's father. Yes, that Fred Astaire. There's also a lot more continuity in the book, with mentions of previous stories. In the novel, Starbuck is called to the bridge. Apollo, Hatch, is redrafting the duty roster after his father, Commander Adama, played by Long Green, and a number of pilots have come down with flu. Starbuck is to pull this patrol with Boomer, played by Herb Jefferson Jr. It's here the episode and the book finally meet up, a good 40 pages in. Boomer and Starbuck are patrolling ahead of the Galactica, and Starbuck tells Boomer of his problems and how he's going to change. No more womenizing, no more gambling... And if you believe that, I've got a planet called Sagittaria I want to sell you. More of this conversation is in the book, but it makes me think the opening may have been, at one point, in a script. See, the Blu-ray for Galactica is a treasure trove of deleted scenes, alternative takes, and behind-the-scenes snippets. And a longer conversation with Boomer is on the Blu-ray that is edited from the show that refers to Starbucks' headspace at this point. Before it can get too heavy, however, the Cylons attack, and there's a neat little goof here. Boomer's scanner shows three raiders attacking them. However, the footage and the destruction shows four. Maybe the fourth one was just off-camera a little bit. The Cylon attack is repelled, but Starbuck's Viper receives heavy damage, with Boomer coaxing Starbuck to a nearby planet, Attila, which for some reason is called Antilla in the book. Boomer reports the planet is inhabitable, and there was a colonial colony there some time ago, but the planet is now reported hostile. Starbuck has no choice. Boomer watches him go down and returns to the Galactica, promising to return with a clean uniform. This was a neat bit of writing. Too many planets so far have had humans on them, given the Cylon's stated mission is to rid the galaxy of the life form known as man. 
establishing that this was a former colony, but is now off-limits, sets up the people that Starbuck will surely find here, as spoiled by that teaser trailer, and that the reason for the planet being off-limits is due, no doubt, to Cylon activity. The scene is also very, very familiar. I covered the return of Starbuck way back on this show, and this opening scene was lifted almost verbatim for that episode, albeit with minor reshooting and dialogue retouches. Here's where we get to one of the reasons I like this episode so much. It's atmosphere. Starbuck crash lands, as expected, but it's really well done. For one, this isn't the standard western backlot. Starbuck has crashed in a muddy, rainy, wet swamp. The life-size viper prop has been buried up to the nose cone and dirtied down considerably. The dry ice machine is clearly working overtime. This doesn't look like the sunny Californian locations we've seen thus far. It looks uncomfortable. It's like Starbuck has crashed in the Lake District in winter. I knew this location. It looked familiar to me. Starbuck had crashed somewhere I recognised. He also doesn't just get out. Starbuck is hurt. He's banged up, barely conscious. This was also quite different. We were used to Apollo being fine when he crash-landed. Same with Butt Rogers. To see Starbuck banged up felt different and more real. The visuals of the Cylon stalking Starbuck through the undergrowth and the water were potent and very striking. According to later interviews with Benedict, he stated that one of the Cylon actors fell in the water filming these scenes, a stumble that nearly ended tragically for the actor, encumbered as he was in the heavy Cylon costume. Fortunately, the other Cylon actors witnessed the accident and pulled him free. The other casualty of this episode was the Cylon costumes, which suffered heavy water damage. There's another reason I like this episode. Spectre. Not the James Bond villains. In the pilot movie, Baltar, played by John Colicos, had betrayed humanity, and was in turn betrayed by the Cylons. For the series, he made a remarkable recovery from being beheaded, and was assisted by an obsequious and slightly camp robot named Lucifer, voiced by Lost in Space's Jonathan Harris, and portrayed by Tweaky himself, Felix Silla. Lucifer was an acerbic, slightly effete addition to the cast, a robot who seemed to look upon Baltar with disdain, but followed his orders, albeit reluctantly and under duress. So what could be better than another Lucifer, this one named Spectre? Spectre was in charge of Attila's Cylon garrison. It's not really explained in the show, but we can assume that the Cylons wiped out the human population of the planet to take over the refining of fuel, as Spectre is in charge of the petrodumps. In the pilot movie, fuel was called Tylium, and no explanation is given for the different names. But maybe the colonial fleet uses Tylium, and Cylons use Petro. Spectre hates Attila. Its wet atmosphere plays havoc with his and his Cylon subordinate circuits. And, after spotting the downed Viper pilot, he sends his garrison to locate it, prematurely informing Balta they've captured a colonial warrior, with the alternative motive of trying to get himself the hell off this planet. Here's a clip. Attila Garrison Commander reporting. Attila? An obscure outpost in the Omega Sector. The commander's name is Spectre, I believe. One of the earlier IL series. Before my time, rather limited in ability.
Report, Spectre. We have apprehended a colonial warrior. Excellent. Have you interrogated the pilot? The scouting party that captured him has not yet returned to our garrison. I think you know what I desire. The exact position of the Galactica. I shall await your next communication. You have a wonderful opportunity here, Spectre. Use it well. By your command. This Spectre seems to have done rather well. For an early model. Starbuck is found by the Cylons and has ordered they're taking him to Spectre. Hey, uh, take it easy, would ya? These humanoids are not well constructed. They damage easily. At least we don't rust. Silence. I quite like that clip, it's quite funny. Spectre's hatred of Attila is hinted at throughout the show, and this is followed up even further in the book where Spectre doesn't just hate Attila, he actively loathes it, and his posting there. He wants out. There are many issues with the portrayal of AI intelligence in Galactica, and a lot can be chalked up to the time it was made, where none of the consideration of robotic intelligence was considered. The Cylons are portrayed as purely machine-like, a dictator of the network, so as not to have the central characters, who, lest we forget, are fighting a war, kill people. By contrast, Lucifer and Spectre, and even the robot dog, Muffet, are seen to have some element of sentience and intelligence. Lucifer is devious, Spectre has desires, and Muffet shows signs of self-sacrifice in certain episodes. Spectre sees this as an opportunity to move up in status, and by flattering Baltar, as he does throughout, this may be his way off this miserable planet. Lucifer exhibits jealousy over Spectre, and Baltar exploits this. Apparently, the machines are intelligent as long as they aren't required to be shot dead on a regular basis. Sadly, the episode tails off a tad here. The atmospheric opening and the idea of a wounded Starbuck being forced to fight alone in a hostile environment is abandoned, as he is rescued from the Cylons by a band of children, who explain what they're up to in this clip. Try not to move. You have been hurt. There were others. My brothers and sister. And Cylons. Don't worry. We can handle them. Kyle is very, very smart. Kyle. My brother. He's our leader. Leader? He's only a boy and the others were just children. We are not children. We are warriors. Mary, prepare some food. The others will soon return for patrol. Patrol? Those boys and that little girl out there with Cylons crawling around, do you realize what can happen? What can happen? They saw their mother killed. Watch the tin cans pillage and invade our castle. Slaughter our people. Tell me, what can happen to them? They could be killed or captured. We are too swift. Our attacks too precise, too well-timed, too well-planned. You attacked them? They are the enemy. They took all we ever had. So now we hurt them. We attacked their ammunition depots, fuel dumps, and patrols. <sighs> Thanks for that. We fight a common foe. 
The exposition is good background and a decent explanation for the Galacticans finding yet another human colony that the Cylons have spectacularly failed to wipe out. Although, I'll give them credit, they've done a better job on this planet than they have anywhere else. As the Cylons have wiped most of the population out, well, all except this one family of children. The idea that these kids have been waging a guerrilla tactic assault on them ever since is a really good one. Especially when we find out their father is still alive and a captive of the Cylons. The problem is in the execution. Audrey Landers is undeniably beautiful and was in fact 22 when this episode was shot. But here must be playing a teenager. Her clothes therefore make no sense. Would she really wear what amounts to nothing more than a bikini in a cold wet environment such as this? Charles Bloom plays her brother, Kyle, and he's dressed similarly, but mostly resplendently in white feathers and a feathered cloak. How does he keep these things so pristine? Starbuck's not been here ten minutes and his uniform's filthy. Dirtying these characters up a bit, giving them torn and messy clothes and her that didn't look like they'd walked out of a Timothée commercial would have helped sell these characters better. As you heard in the clip, Kyle is cocky and arrogant, and this sets up his story arc, minor though it may be. Miri doesn't seem to have a story arc other than to fall for Starbuck, but, go with me here, that's pretty much a big deal. According to the novel, she's 18. Her hormones will be raging, and the only other eligible suitor is her brother. Suddenly, out of the sky falls a handsome, unattached, studly man, who looks like Dirk Benedict. She's going to crush on him. However, wouldn't it have been a better story if she was the leader? She has kept her family alive, and then she makes the hard call to do what needs to be done, despite her crush on Starbuck. In this case, negotiate a prisoner exchange with the Cylons. Starbuck for her father. This has far more character drama than Kyle doing it, especially as Landers is the better actor, who could probably have handled the meatier material more adroitly than Bloom. Bloom's line readings are all a tad stiff and wooden. The other kids don't really amount to much and are simply there. Kyle and Miri at least have some character moments to play, but the younger kids are all just far too cute and cuddly for me. It's fun to see them openly massacre the Cylons, though, as there are precious few things alive quite as sadistic as kids. Back on the Galactica, Adama is ill. What could have been another really saccharine scene with a small child, Boxy, played by Noah Hathaway, is actually really cute. Boxy sneaks into his grandfather's room to tell him a story, as Adama did with him when he was ill. It's one of Boxy's best scenes in the series, and a family moment, showing the true heart of the show was the characters and their relationships. The other cast members are basically resigned to telling Adama about Starbuck and going back to rescue him, although Cassiopeia, the beautiful Lorette Spang, has some nice moments as Adama's nurse. The father, Megan, is played by Bruce Glover, better known around these parts as Mr. Wint in Diamonds Are Forever. He's appalled that the kids want to swap him for the colonial warrior, and it is, of course, a trap. Spect has no intention of giving up Megan, and it's only Starbuck's awareness of the deviousness of the Cylons that allows for a quick bait-and-switch. Megan being a girl's name confused me a tad, but this is Galactica, where mythological names and biblical names are used interchangeably. However, in the book, Megan is a woman, the kid's mother, not their father. This would have been a lovely touch to keep in the show, 
A mother taught these kids how to fight and how to stay alive. After all, there is no stronger emotion in nature than a mother protecting her young. For some reason, the episode itself went with the more obvious choice. The prisoner exchange is also very different in the book, in that the Cylons do actually capture Starbuck. He has a conversation with Megan, but manages to escape thanks to the unicorn he's been learning to ride, who he has apparently taught, somewhere along the line, to hide and wait. When the Cylon wagon goes past, Starbuck jumps onto the unicorn and rides away, promising he will come back for Megan. Whilst this shows Kyle's gullibility more than the TV show, it's a lot sillier. Starbuck has only just been learning to ride. He's only just mastered this animal, and all of a sudden it's as loyal to him as a puppy? This seems slightly spurious to me, even if the animals are portrayed in the book as being somewhat telepathic. The problems escalate for Spectre, causing him to have to keep lying to Balter. Here's a clip. Ah, Spectre. You have the coordinates of the Galactica? Ah, uh, no. Hmm. The colonial warrior was injured in the crash. We are attempting to repair his body in order to extract the information you need. I see. And how long do you estimate this to take? Oh, within five or six centuries. He should have sufficiently recovered to torture. I'm counting on you, Spectre. I know. And may I say, it is a distinct honor to serve the illustrious Baltar. You are a veritable oh, legend. Well, thank you. By your command. You see, a logical explanation. Yes. <laughs> The episode and the book seriously diverge from this point, implying the book was based on an earlier draft, which is weird. The book came out significantly after the episode Erd, so one wonders why he didn't adapt the Erd episode, or script. This could be why the Indicia in the book says it's based upon the script for the young warriors rather than the young lords. The book is a bit more ragtag in the ending, whereas the episode is cuter. Starbuck recites nursery rhymes to help the kids remember their tasks as they attack the garrison to rescue their mother. This idea, taken from the Dirty Dozen, is really far too sweet, and again, the harsher ending fits the story better and even ties up a loose end. In the episode, the kids and Megan decide to stay on a tiller, but there's no one else there. With no way to propagate the species, eventually... Megan and the kids will die out. In the book, it's established that out in the hilltops some survivors remain, implying the colony can possibly be rebuilt. Well, until the Cylons return and kill them all. The book also eliminates the ending where Starbuck seems to encourage Miri's crush on him. What is it with older men and teen girls called Miri in science fiction television shows? Spectre gets his wish. His lying to Baltar having allowed him to abandon Attila and leave. And I'd hoped we'd see him again on the show. But we never did. I have good memories of watching this episode when I was ill as a 11 or 12 year old. Maybe that explains my fondness for it. But I still don't think it's anywhere near the worst episode of the series. Even if it would take Galactica 1980, of all things, to do the story of Starbuck crashing and being stranded real justice. 
If you want to hear more on the return of Starbuck again, I refer you to my earlier episode. There is no greater example of how much US television has matured than the difference between the 1978 and the 2003 versions of Battlestar Galactica. Whilst I like both, I do feel the latter version was often relentlessly grim at times, with no character emerging unsullied. In contrast, the 78 version doesn't emphasise enough that these people watch their worlds, their families, their entire culture destroyed overnight. The 78 version also doesn't seem to have characters worry about fuel or food like the 03 version, nor do they spend time self-analysing their actions. It's a very cosy version of genocide. That said, if I'm pulling out a show for 50 minutes to watch just for fun, the 78 one gets my vote, as it did here. I was just in the mood the other day for watching an episode of Battlestar Galactica, and this is the one I picked. I still get a kick out of seeing the Vipers peel out of the launch tubes and blow some tin cans away to the strains of Stu Phillips' memorable score. The characters, and there were characters, despite what its critics may say, are all fun, if a little white bread, and the feeling of family is really at the heart of the original. That there was characterisation at all is probably more down to Belisario and Lupo than Larson, based upon their other work. The Young Lords is everything good and bad about 78's Galactica. The idea is basically sound, the story basically good, the final product slightly lacking. The kids are too pure and boring, and not at all what kids who'd grown up fighting since they were toddlers would be like. The Cylons are too useless and easily dispatched. I can buy the wholesale slaughter when trained warriors like Apollo and Starbuck are cutting them down, because they were designed to be cannon fodder. The Imperious leader doesn't care about his troops, only his goal. These kids need to have been portrayed as proper roughnecks to have believably survived here. There are kids in rougher areas of my town that would eat this lot for breakfast. Imagine the kids from Attack the Block going against the Cylons. That'd be worth watching. In the book, this is addressed. Spectre has had to cobble together Cylons after the environment has made them relatively useless, so they aren't up to full working capacity, somewhat explaining why these kids have lasted so long. The Young Lords is fun, though. It's very atmospheric. It looks different to other Galactica episodes, like what if the Cylons took over Camelot rather than the Ponderosa? The use of unicorns give it a real fantasy vibe, again in contrast to the dusty western look of other shows. And that's pretty much Galactica 1978 in a nutshell. It's fun and frothy, if not particularly well thought through, with some occasional good ideas that aren't really explored. If you catch an episode on reruns or whatever, it's worth a watch though, and the Blu-ray set does feature an audio commentary on the pilot from the late Richard Hatch, Dirk Benedict and Herb Jefferson Jr., and scads of special features and deleted scenes. Fleeing from the Cylon tyranny, the last battle star, Galactica, leads a ragtag fugitive fleet on a lonely quest. A shining planet known as Earth. Okay, let's have a look in the email sack. Rob McCarthy's emailed in with thoughts on Daniel Craig's Bond. Bond's I'll start that again. My thoughts on Daniel Craig pre-roll. His face looks like Bond in the book, Goldfinger. Never heard much about Blonde, huh? My thoughts on Casino Royale. Great fights. Definitely my favourite Craig. 
Number three, never saw Quantum. Number four, Skyfall. I don't think any other Bond got so much better the second time I watched it. If you're going knowing it's pretty much The Dark Knight Rises, it's good. Spectre. I was doing alright till the reveal of the link between Bond and Blofeld. Then I was out. I saw they arrested the bad in back and I'm cheering. Why? Why was I so happy to see 007 not off the big bad? Because we always hear you're a relic of the Cold War, blah, blah. But that boilerplate speech never works because his methods work. Even in a movie, it's good to remind people the rule of law can be good. Number five, No Time to Die is a bit like Return of the Jedi in that every moment screams, we've got to wrap this up. It's a bit like killing Wolverine in the comics. Wait, nobody asked. Good work. Yeah, it's better than Dark Knight Rises, though, isn't it? Because Dark Knight Rises is very, very boring. But I did mention in that show, for me, the biggest influence on Daniel Craig's Bond movies is Christopher Nolan's Batman films, not Jason Bourne. So it's nice to see that being backed up by somebody else. Uh, Digging Bond is from David Gutierrez. Hello, David. Now rate the theme songs. Short but sweet. I think we've done that. I'm sure me and Paul Spataro and Luke Giaconetti did that somewhere. I don't know where. Whether it was an Is It Jaws or a Back to the Bins, I have no idea. I have no memory of the show. But I'm sure we've done it. But, you know... Thunderball would be numbered. Thunderball, Goldfinger, Diamonds are Forever, Casino Royale would be all up there. Top four, probably. I'd have The Man with the Golden Gun a lot higher than anybody else, because I genuinely love that song. He's got a powerful weapon. Really, Lulu. Charges a million a shot. <laughs> God, it's so smutty, it's brilliant. Um, And obviously at the bottom end of the spectrum, all-time high, he's not very good. Dying other days, god awful, and the rest are, are fine. But I'm sure we've done that, but I can't remember where. But thank you for emailing it. I like a short, punchy email. Tim Elliott's emailed in, number 200 with a bullet. The name's Leyland, Andrew Leyland. You pulled out all the stops for your 200th show. I cannot tell you, Tim, how long that episode took to put together. Honest, it took ages. I would have gone for world domination, but to each his own, well... I don't know that I can be asked, to be honest with you, Tim. I think I'm inherently lazy. I don't really want world domination. I've said many, many times before, if I could have the powers of anybody in comic books, I would have the purple man's powers. And I wouldn't use it for anything skeevy, like David Tennant did in the show. I would basically just use it to live the easiest life possible. I would, like, go into the highest class five-star hotels in the world and just walk up to the desk and say, right, you've booted me in your penthouse apartment for a month. And it's all been paid for. Okay. Thank you. Bye. And that's, that's how I'd live. <laughs> It'd be great. I wouldn't even bother stealing money or stealing anything at all. I would do nothing to attract attention to myself. I would walk into restaurants and just say, if you have a look though, you'll see I've got a reservation. And I'd just live like that all the time. It'd be brilliant. I wouldn't have any money. I'd just... You know, that's why becoming an actual criminal seems like too much hard, like hard work. Anyway, Tim continues, wonderful show, insightful as always. And like Moonraker, your show is always fun. Bond is one of those franchises that work like a psychic profile. Your favourite Bond actor film will reveal your true nature, if you buy into that sort of things. I thought your list was thoughtful and firm. My only real quibble is your claim that Telly Savalis was one of the better Blofelds. I always felt Savalis could have been more wrong for the part if his ass was on backwards. <laughs> 
He comes off as a street-level thug, not a world-conquering supervillain. Yeah, but I think that's why I think he's one of the better ones. He comes across as a threat. As much as I like Donald Pleasance's performance, I don't think he's a threat as Blofeld. And I don't really find Charles Gray a threat as Blofeld either. I actually find Largo from Thunderball and Goldfinger from Goldfinger, obviously, more of a threat than Blofeld. And I think that's been my problem with Blofeld. He's always been the big bad of the Bond series, but he's never really been treated that way. He's not Bond's Joker or Superman's Lex Luthor or Sherlock Holmes's Moriarty. He's never really worked on that level for me in the books. In in the com in the film, sorry. In the books, he's got a bit more gravitas to him, and I felt Savalis had that. But you know, to each his own. Like Dalton, I will keep my stay short. Keep up the great work, and I look forward to the next 200 shows. Cheers, Tim Elliott. You're very welcome, Tim. Thank you very much for the kind words. I hope you all enjoyed episode 200. I'll be back real soon with someone else. You never know what. Uh, HeyKidsComics at virginmedia.com is the email address. The last time I recorded this, I said it looked like everything was going to be okay. When will I learn to keep my mouth shut? I'll see you all next time. Take care. And you be good to yourself. Goodbye.